So, well, we're going on a journey today inwards to the echoes of our own listening, in which we find through a combination of archaeological and theological enchantment a story of our encounters with the sacred. And we'll find that the bridge to sacred experience has come in the past and still comes today through one sense above all, listening, vibration perception, hearing. Now, the philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach, who claimed the death of God uh, in the 19th century, might seem an unlikely proselytizer of the idea of hearing as a bridge to to sacred enchantment. But here's what he said in The Essence of Religion in 1845. If if man had only eyes, hands, and the sense of taste and smell, he would have no religion. For all these senses are organs of critique and scepticism. The only sense which, losing itself in the labyrinth of the ear, strays into the spirit or spook realm of the past and future, the only fearful, mystical, and pious sense is that of hearing." I love that, the the spirit or spook realm. Well, Feuerbach's historical materialist post-enlightenment project wanted to unmask the smoke and mirrors of religious experience precisely through the skepticism and criticism of those other senses. But his is a crucial revelation of the way that hearing takes us to those other places of our experience which we call religious, spiritual, or transcendent, whether that's through shamanistic ritual, cantillation, or communal religiosity, and sounds like these. Tibetan temple rituals, Siberian shamanic music, Jewish cantillation, and Christian hymns. Sounds of the sacred from religious cultures around us in the world today. But for much of the rest of the next hour or so, we're going to go back in time and across cultures to find earlier echoes of the ways that sound and music have activated and been heard to activate divine and uncanny presences, to discover how ancient cultures invoked the sacred through sophisticated manipulation of acoustics, architecture, and cosmology. And that's thanks to the research and work of Paul Devereux, who I'm delighted is with us this evening. And later, the composer, improviser, and author David Toop, who's written books from Ocean of Sound to Sinister Resonance, will create a seance of the uncanny for us right here in the Museum of London, and for all of you watching Uh, on YouTube too, bringing the spirits of inanimate objects, in fact some of these, uh, to life right in front of our eyes and ears. As David himself puts it in the revelatory pages of Sinister Resonance, The Mediumship of the Listener, a book I'd urge you all read, echoing uh, Feuerbach, but he goes further. He says, sound is void, fear and wonder. Listening as if to the dead, like a medium who deals only in history And what's lost, the ear attunes itself to distant signals, eavesdropping on ghosts and their chatter. Unable to write a solid history, the listener accedes to the slippage of time. 
And that's the kind of experiential knife edge that we're on uh, this evening, because the reason that music is such a powerful component of so many religious experiences is to do with the inherently uncanny properties of sound. The way that sound exists in the air, in the ether, that it can be heard to emanate from all around us, from sources that are seen and often unseen. The way that it reverberates in spaces as a disembodied presence, the way that sound waves can create strange and wonderful physical and indeed physiological phenomena. Reverend Lucy Winkett has another gloss on this paradoxical presence and disembodied absence of both sound and the voice of God in another beautiful book called Our Sound is Our Wound. Because we can't see sound, she says, and God is invisible, the world of sound is a rich source of metaphoric descriptions of the presence and activity of God. God has a voice, but no one seriously believes that this means God has a larynx. Well, as we'll find out, the sacred in music, then, is a, is a story of the spooky as well, the uncanny, and even the occult throughout the centuries, over the millennia, and right here in the Museum of London uh, in the next hour. But let's start by inviting Paul Devereux on stage. Now, Paul is one of the founders and leaders of the field of archaeoacoustics, and he's accomplished decades of research into the sound world's acoustics and the potential meaning of ancient sites all over the world, from ringing stones on the west coast of Scotland to the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramids in Egypt to the Hypogeum in Malta. And Paul's going to introduce us all to some of the great secrets of the sounds of the sacred as revealed by his work. Please welcome Paul Devereux. Thank you, Paul. So uh, you have um, control now, and you're going to, you're going to start with uh, the, the things that tell us uh, about a project, about how you started to connect the, the, the architecture of Neolithic spaces and, and even earlier ideas like some of the ringing stones on, on the west coast of Scotland and elsewhere with, uh, with acoustics and, and the idea of a, a transcendent experience that ancient civilizations were creating. Well, <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, uh, I started off... Does this work here? Green. Yeah. Perfect. Archaeoacoustics, it's uh, just it's a fancy word meaning the study of sound at ancient sites. Uh, and it really became, if you like, official. Got its name in about 2003. But people have been looking at sound at ancient places, which is a bit anti-intuitive. Because, you know, the, the sites, these megalithic sites, have been there half as old as time. And sound is ephemeral. It's of the moment. So it took a long while before people put these two things together. And it can take many forms, this study. It can be going to an ancient site, stone circle or whatever, and using a lot of electronic equipment to chart and map the way the sound behaves. It could be going to a place... Uh, sacred, ancient, megalithic site or whatever, and using the human voice or a musical instrument uh, to see how the sound behaves when you're there making this sound. And really the third basic way, and it's the sort of thing that I've been largely engaged in, is going to a site and listening to it. Uh, and there's various ways that can be done. Echoes, for example... Uh, from what you were saying, Tom, I, I thought of the two Van Throat singers. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, now mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a platform thing. They do their throat singing. But it started as a way 
of projecting the voice in certain ways and certain sounds against a cliff face or against uh, in a cave or whatever. So the echoes would be perceived as the voices of the spirits of that place. This is the overtone singing, which it was just, it's a form of overtone yeah, singing. And they can create yeah. often polyphonies of three or four just voices. Making sounds with the, the larynx and whatever. But it, your work, Paul, is not about then saying these are this. It's not about trying to find musical cultures, which no, for whatever reason, of course, lost. The, but, it's, but it's understanding that acoustics are part of what buildings like Stonehenge uh, and other uh, chambered yeah. sites are. That it was part of the reason they were built the way they were. It's, uh, we're dealing really with the ancestor of what we call music today. Uh, the first sounds that human beings were making and making use of. Uh, and they was usually perceived as a spiritual phenomenon. The, the modern idea of an echo, for example, being a sound wave reverberating, uh, wasn't in their lexicon. They thought spirits lived behind rock faces or inside boulders. All over the ancient world, very interesting. Uh, anyway, so I'll just start out. These are, I've got to say, these are just a few selected slides from a much, much longer presentation. So I'm, I'm jumping along. Uh, I got, to answer your earlier question, I became interested in sound and ancient and archaeology, if you like, uh, in the mid-1990s. Uh, this was uh, called uh, an ICRL project which was a group of uh, multidisciplinary people uh, working out of, at that time, Princeton University. And one of the things we got up to was going around prehistoric chambered monuments, megalithic monuments, and uh, getting the bass resonance in those places, uh, which is a sort of fundamental acoustic frequency uh, not to get too technical, because I'm not very technical. Uh, it's a standing wave. So you produce sound, say, in the middle of a chamber, and you go down to the lowest frequency you can get when you get a standing wave, when the wave bounces back on itself, as it were. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, we're, we're all, it's a familiar sensation that if you're in, in the bathroom uh, and, yes. you're, and you're singing <laughs> in the bathroom, there's, all, there's a particular frequency in which you, it seems that the... Yeah. the, the, the the shower or wherever you are is, is resonating in a particular way. Well, what you're creating there are patterns. It's the resonant frequency you find yes, in your bathroom. That's right. Well, it was the same for uh, for these uh, for these sites. But what Paul's work found in, in collaboration with others all, all, all over the world was that there were particular frequency ranges which were activated by sites uh, from in, in Central America, in uh, in in Egypt, in in Malta, and indeed uh, in Newgrange uh, in, in Ireland. And as you can see, 110 hertz is, a, is an important frequency. But the, they were yes, all, the resonant frequencies of all these spaces were roughly around this frequency range between 90 and 120 hertz or so. It's a striking result from seemingly unconnected cultures. Yeah, it was, uh, as we went around, different sized chambers. We only looked at chambered uh, megalithic monuments. And uh, what we found, a recurring frequency, centred on 110 hertz, which is the lower baritone range, if you like. And it... Um, the, uh, we wondered what the hell, why did we keep cropping up on this particular frequency? As Tom said, it might be 111, it might be 112, but it focused in. Mm. Uh, that's New Grange in Ireland, a 3,200 BC structure, mm. and that is cut exactly at 110 hertz. It's one of the best preserved interior structures. But, the, but it's, the significant, it's those brain images, because... There, I'm there getting is, there, yeah, I'm getting right. there. <laughs> um, 
And uh, so we asked one of our team, uh, the ICRL group, uh, uh, Ian Cook and his team at UCLA, is there anything special about this frequency? Mm. And he said, I don't think so. Eventually, he was able to conduct a, a, an experiment uh, with 30 people, men and women, all right-handed. And they, uh, he, he exposed them to a series of different acoustic frequencies, pure acoustic frequencies. And they um, uh, had a minute of listening to it, of each one. And they were measuring the brain with this quantitative EEG. So you get a coloured picture of what the brain activity was. And the lowest activity was the deeper blue. And so you can see at 90 hertz, for example, there's a certain pattern in the frontal cortex. On these pictures, we're looking down on the, uh, on the brain. Mm -hmm. Your nose will be out here. Um, and uh, 130 hertz, very similar. At 110 hertz, that pattern dramatically changed, almost as if a switch had been thrown. Uh, on the frontal cortex. So one side of the forebrain, if you like, went quieter than it had been with all the others. I won't go into any more, but it did affect the human brain. And uh, we've never been able to afford research to find out more about that. But, but just finally, just briefly, I'm sorry, uh, Paul, because the, there's, there's a sense about what uh, what is happening to our bodies at that frequency, that that change. No, is, that, is, that, is that a conscious? Is it something we feel if we're being exposed oh, to 110 yeah, well, hertz? Uh, <laughs> that's what we haven't been able to research. Okay. Because uh, uh <laughs> there have been some ideas that, that, that there's something to do with... Give me 100,000 pounds and I'll be able to Fine, all right, that. very good. <laughs> there, there, there are some theories about, about the way that... Uh, the, what what this might do to induce potential states of, uh, of out-of-body kinds of, of experience. states. Theoretically, because, because you're, the, the, uh, people have at least anecdotally said that there are experiences which I have where you feel that you're in a kind of sleep state, but you're able to watch yourself from above. So, in other words, potentially, there could be a link between not only the idea, the, something special to do with this frequency range that has this kind of effect on our bodies. So, if we imagine being in these societies uh, five, 6,000 years ago, being in a place that was designed for those experiences to happen would be an experience of another realm and uh, just as Paul was saying about spirits being inside as opposed to the way we conventionally think about where the divine is now and where God or God speaks to us from above uh, at that time it's about going in into the earth the gods uh, our spiritual lives were in caves they were at the bottom of caves in they were the very in rocks objects. themselves sometimes mm. um, yeah uh, and often it would be uh, emphasized if you like for them with uh, sort of mind-altering drugs uh, a lot of ancient peoples use them. Uh, and uh, magic uh, mushrooms, all that sort of stuff. And just before we get onto the other phones, that, that, again, there's this work that a colleague of yours, Steve Waller, has done uh, around uh, with over, echoes, yeah, yeah echoes around, from rock art panels. Which is that basically within cave systems, again, this is, is consistent in findings, uh, again, from from the Americas to, to to Europe to cave systems that may be uh, forty thousand years old in terms of their being used by habitation and where the cave art is. But the greatest concentrations of, of image making are in the places of greatest resonant uh, or exposure to resonant frequencies in cave systems. So sometimes these places are miles deep in the cave system, but it's as if it seems that there's a connection between a concentration of image making and a concentration of acoustic uh, activity or potential acoustic activity, which again would support the idea that, this is, that, that these were possible sites of where the most meaningful encounters with the divine or with uh, other voices or with the other world were, were found. Paul, I'm going to stop talking now. No. Um, 
Um, uh, yes, that's basically true. So I got interested in sound uh, at ancient places, uh, on and off. Uh, and for the last 20 years, 15 years, I've been particularly interested in the idea of ringing rocks, or lithophones as they're sometimes called. And these really are the origins of... Um, of music, if you like. Uh, this is an example of a ringing rock. Ringing rocks uh, are types of rock. They're not terribly rare, but they're rare enough to be notable. Mm. And that if you hit them with a small hammer stone, percussion, uh, they'll make a metallic sound or a ringing sound, a bell-like sound, a gong-like sound, and so on. And this caught the attention of prehistoric people. Uh, this is one example. Um, the Balafetris ringing rock on the Scottish island of Tyree. You can see it's got a lot of marks on it for mm. unknown generations of people hitting the rock. So there's an artistic uh, idea of what went on or sort of rituals around it. Uh, there's all sorts of folklore associated with it. Uh, and I'll just play you a little bit of what it sounds like mm. when you strike it. At least I hope. You don't really expect a big piece of rock to sound no, sure, like that. Uh, lots, there's lots of these around the world, and we know now from uh, cross-cultural research uh, that it was they were widely revered, ringing rocks all around the world. Uh, uh, even back in the Paleolithic caves, it's been found, for example, that stalactites and other calcite deposits used to be rung 30,000, 40,000 years ago. Uh, and they found sort of little rock art, little marks on them, calcited over. You can look through thousands of years ago. And if you touch them out, sometimes just with a fingertip, they ring like a harp, beautiful, clear sounds. Uh, and so they had sounds with their art. And the other aspect was the idea that Echoes, if they intone whatever their chants were, uh, the echoes would come back the most strongest from rock walls, and most of those rock walls had rock art on them. Not 100%, but quite a lot. Okay, moving to India now, uh, uh, to give us an idea of how this stuff is so cross-cultural. Uh, several years ago, uh, Nicola Boivin led a, a team of of uh, uh, archaeologists, Anglo-Indian team, uh, and was studying the rock art uh, at this place here called Cupgal Hill. And they, they were noticing the rock art. You can see some of it there, some of it quite uh, clearly. Uh, and then this chap came up to them, local, and he said, you know, these rocks make music. And uh, he came up and started striking the rocks, and they rang like bells. Now, the interesting thing is that's about 2,500 BC, the, this rock art. Uh, about, I don't know, 800 kilometres away from here, from this location, uh, 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 there is Hampi or Vijayanagara, uh, uh, ancient, well, a medieval temple complex, basically. 
uh, and the, there's pillars there. I could show you the rock, but uh, the pictures, but I don't own the copyright, so I can't show them. Um, uh, they are main pillars, and a lot of thin pillows, pillars uh, clad around them, wrapped around them. Those pillars make musical sounds when you tap them, and they are uh, they can produce the basic notes of classical Indian music. Never need retuning. They're all there all the time. And uh, the, in the Raj, the British were amazed about this. And they soared into one of these things to see what was inside. <laughs> it's just the rock, you know. So this is telling us that over hmm, 4,000 years, let's say, uh, a beautiful, highly technical knowledge of making sound from rock was brought to its greatest achievement in India. And it's not just the, the Vitala temple at Hampi. Uh, at least a dozen others we've traced of, of, of temples in southern India. One of them is this, the Meenakshi temple. And the uh, tourist people got onto this in incredible India. Mm. And... Uh, they say this is the biggest musical instrument in the world because it's got all these musical pillars in it. Uh, it's not just India. China had a system called Bainshi, which means resonant rocks. And these are powerful rocks, powerful condensations of chi, of, of the mysterious invisible energy that animates the world. And they traded these resonant rocks with great cost. Paul, can we? Can, um, I'm just aware of time, and the museum shuts at seven. Can we? Can we? The Stonehenge and House of Fleet. It's of my time. I know. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. No, sorry. But this is honestly, it's it's completely wonderful. I just wonder whether you want to the, the, the uh, ringing rock in California. Uh, whether you wanted to t tell us about the Stonehenge and the Priscelli. Well, okay. Let's get there then. Well, no. Well, I... <laughs> that's what that sounds like. It's. On Southern California, but just, it's in the middle of a vision quest site. Is there, is, 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 there, is there always a connection between the ringing rocks and sites of potential, you know, tr transcendent? No, there's a lot of ringing think. rocks around, but they were picked out for people who use them in yeah. ritual settings. Yeah, and, and that connection is, is common, we, we imagine. The idea of rocks that ring and some sacred activity of some kind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we've traced some of them. I mean, if I gave you the full hour lecture, uh, you would, you would, I would back all this up. Any case, something we were doing uh, under the aegis of the Royal College of Art, my colleague John Wozencroft and myself, um, uh, set about this project called Landscape and Perception, and the idea was to go to a, a fairly unspoiled prehistoric landscape and try and see it and hear it. Uh, as if with Stone Age eyes and ears, unfiltered, if you like. And one of the things we did, it was we went to the source area of the Stonehenge Bluestones, uh, which is the Khan Menin Ridge and surroundings in Priscelli. Uh, and it's various ones have been, the Bluestones of Stonehenge, by the way, not the big ones, they're the small, smaller stones, as you see here, uh, it was about 60, 80 of them, I think, originally. Originally, uh, And they're the oldest stones. The big sarsen ones came later. So we went around and we percussed thousands of these stones and built up a picture of them. 
And this is one, just one example, uh, a big rhomboid of a, of a rock. And this is another one there on that ridge. Uh, it's got rock art on it, the cut marks. Uh, we had Zeb, the percussionist, up there, and he did uh, quite a bit of work for us up there. Uh, and I'll just give you the first little bit. And obviously the whole Fraselli landscape uh, would have been, uh, well, we know from the, from the monuments up there, would, be the, uh, would have been a sacred landscape, and it was a soundscape. And that might be one of the reasons uh, that the blue stones taken from there and brought 200 kilometres south to Stonehenge, uh, to the site that was to become Stonehenge, it, they may, may have had a certain mana to them because of the spirits within the rock, the spiritual quality. Maybe the healing, we, we don't know that. Okay, finally... Um, <laughs> Uh, You're right. <laughs> uh, this is the in the chamber of a Neolithic uh, megalithic site uh, called Balcladiad Igaz, which is uh, on uh, Anglesey, Wales. And that, as you can see, is something of a uh, a dolmen structure. It stood mm. out on its own uh, originally, and then they built a chamber around it, uh, a much closer chamber than now. Uh, which it felt, you know, decayed, and they put a, uh, a big concrete uh, dome over it. Uh, we uh, found that a part of that capstone, uh, by the way, it doesn't look like this, it's dark and dingy, but I was making it look magical with it. <laughs> uh, uh, and we found a part of it uh, made a sound. It was a, a, an acoustic resonant stone in parts anyway. And what you're going to hear now is uh, only the sound of rock being struck. What I have done, to be fair, I've added a little bit of reverb to it um, uh, because it would have reverberated in this small chamber it originally had. So it's an attempt to sort of get that sort of sound back. Anyway, this is the voice of the gods. This is the voice of the ancestors. So imagine you've just taken a load of psilocybin mushrooms, grow all around there. <laughs> And listen to that, and you would have been awed. You would have been. Is that where you want me to end now? I think, uh, Paul, that's wonderful. Thank you. A round of applause for Paul Deborah. Thank you. Fantastic, Paul. Thank you. 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 I'm just going to quit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, look at that. I know. You see, there's lots more. You, you need. There you are. There you are. Paul's books. That's what you need. <laughs> um, among others. Um, yeah, 27 others. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll see myself out. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you.
you very much. Sacredly. Well, I just want uh, thank you. Uh, it's a revelation of revelation that because it's the idea of going inside, and not just inside our history, but also kind of inside our bodies and inside these spaces. But I, I want to return a little bit and fly through the centuries to uh, some of the scepticism that I began with in uh, Feuerbach's sort of project, because, of course, there were, there were later traditions than the ones uh, Paul's introduced us to, in which the, the sounds of the voice of, of God were uh, heard, like the oracle at Delphi. This is a 19th century uh, imagination of what might have happened with the Pythia, um, the, the high priestess who was... Uh, incarnations of whom were active uh, from the 8th century BC to the 4th AD. And there are long and ongoing traditions across cultures all over the world, religiously speaking, from Christianity to shamanism, uh, the idea of speaking in tongues. But by the time we get to the 18th century, the sense of this uncanny presence, the idea of the mushroom-taking uh, Neolithic cultures and, and, and our understanding of what, uh, of, of what was going on physically, scientifically in those processes. Well, we wanted to get to a point where uh, enlightenment uh, science would tell us what, what was happening and how the, the voices of God were produced, not through divine presence and through a slightly faulty understanding of, of acoustics. Uh, I don't mean the ancients, I mean the, the 18th century, but nonetheless, that actually they were made through a deception of one kind or another. Uh, this is a story that's called, told in great detail by um, uh, Lee Eric Schmidt in a book called Hearing Things, Religion, Illusion and the American Enlightenment. Well, here's how in France uh, in, the, in the 18th century, Bernard Le Bouvier de Fontenelle, uh, L'Histoire des Oracles, the history of oracles, sees uh, the true light of Christianity casting out the pagan voices of the, uh, of, of, uh, well, of the, uh, you can see the, the, on the, on the right-hand side of the picture there, uh, the demons are disappearing out of the voices of the pagans in vapours through the blinding light from the Christian crucifix on, on the left-hand side. And the idea of revealing the illusions of how voices and divine presences were supposedly produced became a commonplace as the, as the 19th century wore on. Here there was another image from Fontenelle's Histoire des Oracles. So you can see that there is the statue is speaking, uh, literally because, as you can see underneath, uh, because there is a speaker, a human, a human presence, <laughs> uh, who is answering questions uh, put to the statue and clearly uh, he- hearing what's going on. So the, the artifice is revealed. Um, the same thing happened in the 19th century. Variety acts in, in the United States and, and all over the world were uh, obsessed with the ac- acoustic temple. And acoustic temples, which uh, P.T. Barnum gloried in as well, were obvious devices, whereas you can see the, uh, the listener would be astonished by hearing voices seemingly covering, coming from uh, above and coming from the vaulted ceiling of this temple, whereas, of course, it was somebody speaking in the next room. Um, the German thinker Athanasius Kircher had a, a similar idea at the end of the 17th century. You can see here, uh, if, if you look at the, the smaller figures, uh, these gigantic uh, trumpets sort of buried in the, into the walls of this structure. Uh, the, the sounds would be carried, the voices of the voices of people, and, and the statue would seem to speak to the, uh, to the hapless person uh, listening, listening to the statue. Um, he also had an idea for uh, a, a call to Christian prayer, so that these huge trumpets, sadly unrealized, would, uh, would call people from miles and miles around. An unfortunate, uh, unfortunately unrealized project. It would be rather astonishing to experience that. Uh, the, the, by the, as the 19th century wears on, this scepticism uh, keeps uh, growing so that we get to the point where if you wanted to hear or if you asked to hear the voice of God, the idea of having your questions answered perhaps by a sphinx uh, would be, this would be your fate. If you, were, if you were to dare to ask a sphinx or another supposed deity for an answer, this would be your fate, waiting a long time uh, in the desert. 
Um, Twelve years later, uh, Elihu Vedder uh, repainted that to even greater effect. Time has passed. He is older. The answer continueth to cometh not. Um, uh, uh, interestingly, this, this image was used by the Pabst Brewing Company uh, to advertise beer uh, in, in the late 19th century. Because, well, look, if you, look, if you couldn't, you know, if you were thirsty in the desert for the voice of God, if you couldn't hear the divine presence, at least you could get a beer. Anyway, um, but we, on the other hand, now, uh, in today's 21st century, we're all so frightfully sophisticated. We don't ask inanimate objects for divine intervention, do we, in our good, rational, post-enlightenment phase? Well, in fact, we do ask oracular questions of inanimate objects for guidance in our lives billions of times every day. And the difference is, as opposed to the unfortunate uh, pilgrim in the desert there, that these mysterious voices respond, respond instantly to us, of course. Um, literal oracles that we're dealing with uh, all the time. Uh, but the, and, and magical presences, I mean, it, again, it's worth, it was worth imagining the, the idea, of, of course, of what it would have been like to be in those Neolithic sites that, that Paul was introducing us to, and the magic of presences that seem to be revealed in a source of sound that you can't see. But, I mean, the, the magic of what this, these objects are, which we'd rather take for granted, if we were to transpose them back in time, they'd be pretty magical objects too. And yet, we don't need to um, attempt to invoke the voice of God from inanimate objects, because we have something, in a way, much better. In religious traditions, we have God's words. We have listening and we have music. So when we make, mus uh, when we make God's words our own through declamation or chanting or singing, we're literally incarnating the words of God, the voice of God. So here's uh, Ibn al-Arabi, a medieval Sufi mystic. The first thing we knew from God and which became connected to us was his speech and our listening. Therefore, all messengers came with speech, the Quran, the Torah, the Gospels, the Psalms, and the Scriptures. There's nothing but speech and listening. There can be nothing else. Were it not for speech, we would not know what the desirer desires from us. We move about in listening. And the striking thing is that for all the nearly infinite diversity of religious uh, musics and rituals all over the world, and for all the, the little things we in a sense know about the precise musical cultures of uh, those cultures thousands of years ago, what they are clearly about and what, what is common to them all is the idea of singing. And often very simple a kind of singing, an intoning of a single, often simple melodic shape or contour as we commit religious texts to memory through the sounding mechanisms of our bodies, whether that's Buddhist sutras or whether it's calls to prayer Hebrew cantillation, chant is common to religious cultures all over the world. So I just want to focus a little bit on the chant of the early Christian church, a story that's told in miraculous and brilliant detail by Christopher Page in a book, uh, The Christian West and Its Singers, The First A Thousand Years. But chant in these centuries was how the liturgy and scripture was disseminated. It was how it was learnt by priests. So the early church was full of singers. And it had to be so that the texts and teachings could be spread as widely as possible. Uh, this music is from the earliest Christian repertoire that we have in the West. It's the Ambrosian chant, uh, the fourth century uh, of the, the Bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose. Sounds that we're now hearing recreated by the singers of Ensemble Organum. And the form of these chants is a simple call and response. So the single voice intones a melody which is taken on in the tune and the text of, uh, by a choir of monks. 
singing this simple and unadorned and unharmonized line, which would reverberate through the, the spaces of those increasingly grand churches of the fourth and fifth century, glorifying the godly in a sense of spatial vastness, using acoustics with just as sophisticated a, a manipulation of acoustic and architectural technology as Paul has introduced us to, but in a different way. This kind of chant develops into what we call Gregorian chant after Pope Gregory, uh, who codified the, the, the chants to follow the service of the, uh, the Roman Catholic liturgical year. And that, this repertoire of chants is still sung today. They were written down and codified with ever greater precision as music developed a literary as well as sonic language throughout the later first millennium. And here's what Gregorian chant sounds like. slightly greater floridity and flexibility in that melodic line from the, the previous uh, chant that we heard from a couple of centuries earlier. But the point is, in specifically Christian context, chant like this is performing a kind of multi-dimensional alchemy in the transformation of the musical into the sacramental. Uh, Professor Jer Jeremy Llewellyn of uh, University of Oxford has, has suggested how this is happening. Firstly, when we sing, we're participating in a praise that's eternal and heavenly. We're joining with the angels. We are enacting performatively that angelic praise. But we're also singing because we're encountering a, a divine presence from which mere language fails. For all that this chant is partly about the communication of these texts, it's also about the creation of, ex of an experience that's simply too large to be put only into words. So singing, even in a specifically Christian context, is about a connection with other worlds, of resonance familiar to us from the kinds of things that Paul Devereux was, was telling us about. There is, of course, though, a specific literary uh, and mnemonic uh, function of these texts. This is a way of embodying uh, these liturgical uh, texts so that we memorize them better. When we're singing them, they're imprinted on our memories better. They're a better way simply of transmitting the ideas of the liturgy. So transformation through amplified resonance, one of the secrets of the sacred in sound, as we've heard from Paul and as we will again from, from David Toop. But these transcendences wrought by music and the kinds of chant repertoire we've just been listening to are a problem for many religions because if sound itself... Uh, is capable of, uh, of inducing a, a kind of state of altered consciousness, as it has been doing for millennia, according to Paul Devereux and others, then music could be as dangerous as it's useful for religious practice. And it boils down to this. If we're, uh, if we're really enjoying the music rather than paying attention to the words, we're missing the message of being a better religious observant, and we're simply enjoying the pleasures of the music too much. That's the reason that so many religions have ambivalent relationships with music and pleasure. Should instruments be allowed in churches or temples? What scales and modes are appropriate for sacred contemplation and which are liable to rather to induce a state of ecstasy in, in us listening? Should any music at all be heard in a place of worship? Well, one of the first to voice their concerns and turn his clear musical philia into a major crisis of his moral compass was St. Augustine in North Africa at the end of the, third, of the fourth century. Here he is in his confessions. Um, oh, no, he's not. I've missed that bit. I'm going to get... There we are. Uh, so, uh, and, and St. Augustine says, Thus I fluctuate between peril of pleasure 
and approved wholesomeness, inclined to approve of the usage of singing in the church, that by the delight of the ears, weaker minds, weaker minds than his, I guess he means, may rise to the feeling of devotion. Yet when it befalls me to be more moved with the voice than the words sung, I confess to have sinned penally, and then had rather not hear music. O Lord my God, hearken, behold, and see, and have mercy, and heal me, thou in whose presence I have become a problem to myself, and that is my infirmity. Music is capable of great uh, psychological and moral decrepitude, according to St. Augustine. Well, he definitely have a problem with the music I'm going to play you now. Uh, it's a late 12th century example of music's enchanted powers uh, of the sacred, the kinds of uh, uncanny enchantment that Paul's been telling us about. Well, Christianity knew these, uh, these uncanny enchantments as well. And of course, in a sense, that's what all music is, enchantment, a magic made by singing, playing, uh, by chanting. Well, it's what this music does. It's... Um, uh, Perrotin's Viderunt Omnes, a piece of organum quadruplum from the Magnus Liber Organi collection at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, the forests of whose vaults, as Paul was telling me, uh, you're seeing on the right-hand side there. The church was uh, in, in a pretty good state of completion but by the time this chant was written in 1198. And you'll hear uh, what it sounds like. <laughs> Organum quadruplum just means it's a piece for four voices. Uh, and it's music that really would have given Augustine, I think, a big moral quandary. Uh, it, uh, it's, it becomes ecstatically and outrageously beautiful. And it's setting a text that simply says, uh, All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Rejoice in the Lord, all lands. Viderunt omnes finisterre, salutari dei nostri, jubilate deu omnis terra. Not, though, that we know that until a long way through, because when it starts, all we've heard so far is one syllable, the V of Widerund. We're still on V. <laughs> so as far, if we're listening, we've got no idea what the text is or what possible connection with liturgy there might be. This is pure celebration of that uh, moral corrupting sound. <laughs> In fact, it takes theatre of voices 50 seconds to get to the second syllable. Such is the joyful dazzle and the sensual complexity of Perrotin's music. So it's a piece that seems to be not about setting these words, not about the liturgy, but rather about turning them into experience. Our attention is pleasurably suspended in the stop time of those 50 seconds or the three and a half minutes that it takes for the first two words, viduant omnes, uh, to be sung. So time seems to stop here and we're, we watch and hear the music unfurl in front of us, ever more beautiful, ever more extravagant, especially in that super resonant cathedral, that chamber, that cave, effectively, that man-made cave for which it was written, Notre Dame Cathedral. It's music that becomes an ethereal flight of spiritual fantasy in the air. You can feel St. Augustine's displeasure 1,700 years on. But in a way, in flying free from the words, Perrotin gets closer to the meaning of this text because the music realises a sense of rejoicing more joyously and more completely than singing the chant melodies on their own would do. 
And actually, that's how the whole piece ends, in fact, with the whole Viderant Omnes text in its original unadorned Gregorian so-called chant, as Peritan reveals the words that have inspired this overabundance, this sound of rejoicing of all of the lands uh, over the world of, of God's salvation. But Viderant Omnes is just one of the countless proofs of the ties that bind the musical to the, to the sacred, that when our souls are full of faith, we need to sing. And when we're full of music, as performers or as listeners, there's a presence which is tangibly there, but which is as ethereal and difficult to define, yet simple to feel, as the presence that any religious person would call divine. This is the enchantment of the music and the sacred. We are enchanted, whether we're in 12th century Paris or whether we're in, in uh, four millennia old BC, or if we're at Stonehenge or if we're at the ringing rocks of the west coast of Scotland, um, or if we're at any kind of religious worship today that involves singing. I'm thinking of Bach and Martin Luther. I'm shortly going to introduce David Toup onto the stage, but I very briefly want to tell you about Bach's passions. And uh, uh, one of the things that seems... When we think about that, that image of Notre Dame Cathedral, is that there might be a sense that what Christian spirituality, when it's, in, when it's enacted through music, is about going outwards, that divinity is external to us rather than being inside us in a way that we might have experienced it thousands of year, years ago if we were part of Neolithic cultures. But in fact, in returning repertoires of song to us, as Martin Luther's reforms did and as Bach's passions do, we are in a way restored to that sense of our bodies being the true places where divinity can resonate, just as music does most powerfully. Well, for more revelations of how the uncanny and the sacred can be made on this table in the Museum of London, I'd like you all now to welcome, please, uh, David Toop, composer, improviser and author. Thank you. David, thank you. Uh, thank look, you. From this assemblage of uh, <laughs> objects, which I think we're going to be able to see in greater detail, um, there we are uh, soon. Yes. See, out of the infinite void, images will, will become apparent. Um, but your, your book, I mean, Sinister Resonance, is all about uh, tying in the, uh, the whole sound worlds of, of not only sacred music, but sound itself as literally that, a sinister resonance, a, a harbinger of other worlds. Yes, I, I, I started off um, writing Sinister Resonance because I was thinking about the fearful aspects of sound and listening. Um, I was thinking, for example, of when I was a child and, and lying in bed and, and thinking I was hearing somebody moving around the side of my bed and, you know, trying to keep absolutely still and, and also hearing noises of the house at night. And it, you don't know what they are, but they feel somehow malign to you and be, simply because you can't identify the source and it's strange. So that... That aspect of sound was very interesting. But I find a lot of what you've been talking about fascinating, this idea of caves, whether it be um, literal caves, um, the kind of thing Paul was discussing, or, or these cathedrals. And the question is my, in my mind is, why does that formulation exist? And of course, the thing is, that's how we all start, isn't it? We start in a cave. We start in, in, the, in, the, in the womb of the mother. And our impression of the world at that time is, is sonic. We're hearing and, and to some degree feeling strange sounds, uh, not only of the mother, but also from outside the mother. So there's a lot of research that's been done that um, 
newborn babies recognize their mother's voice because that's what they've been hearing. Also, as you were speaking, David, you're activating a strange feedback sound, which is a beautiful halo around your voice. I, I, promise, that's a, I promise that's a sonic <laughs> phenomenon, not something that David himself is doing, unless there's something he's not telling me. Uh, but um, the, 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 and the idea, because and hearing is the first sense to develop, uh, yes. the fetus develops yes. in the, around Absolutely. four and a half months. So that we are, we're literally born in, in, into a world of this uncanny hearing because yes. in the womb we, we can't identify where sounds are, are coming from. That's absolutely right. And, and I think that originary experience um, of sound within the cave combines with the nature of sound itself, you know, which is um, disappearing in time and which is uh, somehow numinous in the, way, the same way that um, sacred experiences are numinous. Um, that's, that's why sound is the, is the perfect medium for this communication with whatever we want to call them, gods or spirits or whatever it is. Can you, can you release some for us now, David? Because, because, yeah. because the great thing is that it need not only be uh, gigantic sites like uh, Stonehenge, it can, it can be a cassette tape recorder, remember those, although they're actually coming back into fashion in certain parts <laughs> of the world now. But anyway, David, some original cassettes, but you know, the point is even in these smaller inanimate objects, the, the worlds can be, at the, or the, 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 precisely that sense of the numinous and the uncanny can be revealed. Yeah, there's a little story about this. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, at the beginning of the 70s, I was invited by an extraordinary radio producer called Maddo Stewart to make programmes for BBC Radio 3. And I was incredibly interested in sacred music at that time, partly because music seemed so much to do with entertainment, and I wanted to go beyond that. You know, I wanted to, something that was more meaningful than just entertaining people. And she gave me the run of the BBC Sound Archives. Everything was on 10-inch vinyl then. And amazingly, they used to let me, a 21-year-old, 22-year-old um, <clears throat> unknown person, take these records home, and of course I recorded them all, uh, rather naughtily, onto cassette. And I still have all these cassettes. And in a way, these have become sacred objects. <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. Over time, they became... I started to think, these are incredible. They have so much on them. So this one has music of Laotian hill tribes, Locan trance dance, imitation of dog, monkey, goat, sheep, cat. You know, this one has... Um, South American music, dance ceremony, creation of the world. And, and this one has sacred flute music from Papua New Guinea. Merliton's flying witch music. I mean, <clears throat> incredible stuff. Um, but uh, fairly recently in performance, I started experimenting with bone conduction loudspeakers. These are the same things that are used in hearing aids or something like Google Glass. Um, and so... Normally, they sound or resonate through the bones of your skull, but you can attach them to anything. And I was using the performance, and I, I got out these cassettes um, because they're highly sig significant objects in my own development, they own my history of exploring all of this amazing material. And um, I started... <coughs> you, you, you spoke earlier about inanimate objects... Well, what is an inanimate object? It's <coughs> we can bring inanimate objects to life. So <coughs> this we can't really hear because it's. Uh, I apologise, you can't see it, but you can hear. <laughs> it's it's on the table, and there's a cloth on the table. But 
Ahí va. That's using the bone conduction, which would otherwise go, <laughs> go into our yes. skulls, yes. <laughs> to turn <laughs> this into a speaker, to, to turn this spirits. Well, actually, it's turning this into a cave, you know? Yeah. This is, this is now a cave. And, and so there's this, this incredible relationship between the interior of the body, our beginnings as human beings, these sacred spaces that are created throughout history, and... and the, the throwaway objects around us. and what, what is this precisely, this throwaway cave? This had tea in it. This right. is a tin that had tea in it. I'm very keen on tea. Now, <laughs> this is paper clips. You see, because they're magnetic, we have the amplification of these sacred sounds through paper clips and pins. So, which, which, which is the sort of sound that we're hearing? Is this the witch dance? Or uh, the I, I think this is the, uh, the trance dance, the imitation of the dog, monkey, goat and sheep. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to disengage these. <laughs> but um, <coughs> if I play something different, let's try um, um, this music from Papua New Guinea. Maybe we'll get the flying witch music. Well, it's a kind of men's voices, choral voices. So in a way, it's the equivalent of that extraordinary paratone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then we have something really spooky. It's a piece of paper. It's a piece of paper. Magic. And we say magic into a, a loudspeaker, but what is a loudspeaker? It's a piece of cardboard. Right? <laughs> it has a driver and it has a wooden box, but basically a loudspeaker is a piece of cardboard. Uh, have you, look, have the, all of this, this work and way of uh, feeling and understanding the world, David, does it just I mean you're. Is sound ever knowable to you, or is it always uncanny as you pl put the microphone on your head? <laughs> Well, this is the most extraordinary God. thing that you can't share, but if I put that here, I can hear this absolutely clearly, and, and that's really the spookiest thing. But I can put it on my teeth. And that's an extraordinary sound. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 it was, a, it was just a question about, about your, your continued investigations of, of the uncanniness of it. Does it ever, I mean, because, look, as you, as you know and, and have a relationship with all of the, the, the well, the traditions of, and the understanding of, the, a lot of your book is about the relationship between seeing and hearing and the idea of seeing as a, as, a, uh, as a way of placing ourselves in the world in what may or may not be an increasingly, uh, you know, visually dominated culture. But you, but you feel that sound has, is always having this enchanting effect on us, whether we want to call it always a spiritual or a sacred experience, sound is always having this slipping effect on our experience of the world. Do you, st you still, do you think that becomes ever more the case? Yes, and I go more and more deeply into it, and I found, find more and more examples of it. For example, I became very interested in um, descriptions of sound in literature, and I, th I think, first of all, that came about through reading Thomas Hardy um, when I was 
probably a teenager, and Hardy is fantastic for describing all kinds of strange events. Well, he, talk, he talks about the wind. Talking, talking, yes, back yes, to Paul Devereux, yeah. he talks about the wind in Stonehenge, doesn't he? Right. Animating the site. He does indeed, and he also talks about Aeolian harps and all kinds of things. But uh, more recently I've read Jane Austen, and, and of course if you read Jane Austen, you, you're plunged into an auditory world. Jane Austen doesn't really do much description of the physical world. Most of her books are interactions between people speaking and listening, often mishearing. So you get a lot of eavesdropping, you get a lot of misunderstandings coming about because people have misheard things and misinterpreted them. But you're basically in another cave with Jane Austen. You know, this tightly enclosed world of, of, of speech in which everything is important. And there are so many interest, instances in Jane Austen, you know, where if, if you miss what somebody says as a reader, you don't know what's going on. So, you know, the significance of sound, uh, it, it's so deep within our, within our cultural life from the most abstract to, you know, to um, <coughs> the most concrete. What for you, David? And I'm aware of the three minutes before the museum shuts. <laughs> and we all get locked in our own cave. Actually, we could do a lot here. If we do all get locked in, there's a lot of listening potential among us all here. Yes, we um, have some materials. I just wonder if you could uh, uh, t tell us about one of the, maybe a, a defining uncanny experience that you've had with sound and perhaps another uncanny activation before we end. Yes, actually, this, um, <coughs> these are, this is a shaman rattle from Laos. Hmong uh, people, shaman rattle that I bought when I was there. And um, I was taken to a place... <coughs> Actually, I wanted to go somewhere else, but, you know, sometimes you pay somebody in these place, places to take you somewhere, and they have a little deal going along the way. So they stop. They say, oh, we'll just stop here. And you go to a village, and you're supposed to buy things. Well, <coughs> it was actually a Hmong village, and probably one of the most upsetting, depressing experiences I've had. Um, really, people living in wretched poverty and um, selling these these things, and um, I was just devastated by the experience. And I walked around. Yeah, you know, there was a pathway, you know, with with women and children selling these things, and um, it felt so demeaning. And then I got round to the back, and and there was a hut. It was a kind of men's hut, and I could actually hear the same rattle. Hmm. I mean, not exactly the same one, but the same, the same rattle I had actually bought. And it was, it was almost a kind of sound of hope that something, some fragment, you know, of sacredness in this culture had survived, you know, the ignominy into which they had been forced to descend. And, you know, that was an amazing moment for me. To hear this, you know, this same sound of this rattle. And it was sound that did is it, is it activatable through <coughs> bone conduction? Uh, I don't know through the bone conduction, but uh, it's probably... Yes, it is. So there we have the sense of um, one possibly... Um, uh, what's the word? Um... Defunct music, a music which no, no longer exists, played through a defunct technology into another piece of sacred technology 
this Hmong uh, shaman rattler. David, thank you. Well, that has brought a revelation of all of those sacred worlds. I want to thank you all very much for being in the same. Huge thanks to Paul Devereaux. Enormous thanks to David Toop as well. Thanks to all thank of you, you watching. Thank you to all of you. Thank you.